you know, a fan of Daniel Bryan's work in Ring of Honor and, uh, you know, being a, a big fan of what he's been able to accomplish in WWE uh, thus far. And it was just a really unexpected moment on the uh, on the Money in the Bank pay-per-view. You know, there, I think uh, we had, uh, we all did our predictions ahead of that pay-per-view and almost none of us had, uh, you know, Bryan even in the consideration for getting the win. And it was a nice cool. moment that, uh, you know, that whole pay-per-view really was a, kind of an homage to, uh, you know, core wrestling fans. And uh, I, I was uh, just kind of blown away by the way it all went down, and uh, it was a nice uh, celebratory moment for people that, you know, are, are really uh, core wrestling fans who follow, you know, other wrestling products outside of WWE to see somebody who, you know, had such a reputation for being uh, a great talent come into the company and succeed where a lot of people hadn't given him a shot. So that was a great moment for me, and, and I, uh, I look back on it very fondly. Yeah, and it, it was just a great match in general. We talk about, you know, and we talked about this. For most of these moments, by the way, folks, if you become a .NET member, you can go back and listen to our old countdowns and hear us break things down in detail. We're going to go a little quicker today since we have, like, 16 things to get through, adding our two lists together. But you watch that match, and it's just phenomenal. They kept the fans on their feet. Um, it was the match with less star power going into it, with uh, Heath Slater and Justin Gabriel both involved. But... Everyone in that match worked really hard, and it turned out to be quite the uh, exciting ride. Yeah, I think uh, you know even my own prediction had had Sheamus uh, winning that match, and then we had that uh, that ladder spot with uh, Sin Cara that put him out for uh, his wellness violation, and and a lot of other uh, you know normal Money in the Bank uh, ladder spots that, that you know we that are you know, just a generally exciting match. So. Uh, on top of a really good match, we got a, a really exciting finish that uh, you know kind of played into kind of the theme of the night, which was you know that uh, you know this was a show for for longtime core wrestling fans and people who you know were who would be excited to see people like CM Punk and, and Daniel Bryan spotlighted on a huge wrestling show. So good times. Yeah, and um, my number five moment of the year was The Rock returning to WWE on February 14th, Valentine's Day. Being, everyone expected him to be announced as a guest host of Raw of uh, WrestleMania. And when that music hit, the uh, Honda Center in Anaheim lost itself. It was absolutely crazy. Rock went on to cut a brilliant, I don't think he's topped it in his return, about 25-minute promo. I mean, yeah, a lot of people can nitpick and say, well, he didn't stay back and he didn't do all that. And if you expected that, there's some issues. But in the end, Rock cut a great promo setting up even what we're seeing today with uh, the Rock and John Cena feud going forward. It was a really great moment. And I think one of it has to be one of the biggest moments of the year. And as far as the best, I, I think it has to rank up there in my top five. Yeah, I've enjoyed the Rock's return thus far. I mean, it's uh, it's definitely been... You know, one of those things that's been, you know, in, in the forefront of, of WWE mindshare. I mean, they they started promoting it very early in the year, and then, you know, they announced the WrestleMania match, and uh, you know, it's been a pretty constant stream of Rock-related stuff since then. So it, it's been a good return for the Rock, and I really enjoyed uh, that return promo. And I, I think you're right. I think he struggled to top that thus far. Uh, you know, the only other Rock moment that I can think of that uh, came close was just watching him return to the ring recently at Survivor Series where he looked in great shape. But, yeah, it's a lot of fun to see The Rock back. And, you know, I, I don't know how regularly that will happen beyond uh, this feud with Cena, but it, it's been a, a fun uh, nostalgia trip to see a guy who 
kind of exploded in WWE and then left to go do other things, come back and and uh, you know give the fans a little taste of what they uh, they used to see. And it doesn't seem like he's lost a step at all. So good stuff. And I think one of the major criticisms of the story is the fact that it is kind of a nostalgia trip. People are getting a little bored of the nostalgia and saying, you know, Rock isn't bringing anything new, but I really think we're going to see something good out of Rock and Cena as they go home into WrestleMania. Rock doesn't disappoint. Rock's not about, you know, giving it 10% or 50%. Rock is about giving it 100%. And if he's returning to the ring, if he's returning to singles action, if he's returning to WrestleMania, I think we're going to see something very special from Rock and Cena, both in the build and the actual match at WrestleMania 28, that, you know, when we sit down and do the countdown for 2012, it might be hard to find a moment that tops that one. Uh, you're probably right. It'll be a, a definite uh, high point for the pay-per-view. I, you know, depending on how the card shakes out, it, it might be the best moment. But I, I, I'm looking forward to WrestleMania because I think they have a lot of interesting matchups to think about. Mm-hmm. So uh, hit us with your number four. Uh, my number four moment was uh, Mark Henry's promo following his uh, World Heavyweight Championship win at the uh, United Champions pay-per-view. I don't know how many people watch that show live or remember this, but you know, up until that point, we had uh, kind of seen Mark Henry starting to emerge as you know one of those uh, you know main event heels that uh, that's a mainstay, and and I think this promo kind of was a launching point to let you know that okay, you know this guy's for real, and uh, you know this isn't a fluke. He really is that good. You know, he delivered uh, a fairly good match with Randy Orton. But really, it, it was the promos leading up to and after the pay-per-view that really sold me on the fact that this is a different Mark Henry. That he's, you know, that he's serious about, uh, you know, making a, a run with the world heavyweight title. And uh, you know, it was a, a new level of intensity for him that I really enjoyed. And what I think I really appreciated about uh, this promo is the commentators were playing it up. You know, Mark Henry's story, 18 years in the making, all of that, the big big story around Mark Henry was, you know, he's been here for 14, well, what, the 12, 14, eh, a lot of years, and now he's getting this opportunity, and he finally has it. It would have been so easy for him to cut the, I did it, I did, you know, and kind of turn babyface in that moment to get the crowd behind him, because fans love seeing, you know, someone realize their dreams, no matter what it is, people love seeing someone's dreams realized. Well, what, what Henry did is he did a little bit of that, then turned it into a heel promo in that moment where you just kind of stood back and went, this guy's good. Yeah, I mean, the uh, the moment I think you're referring to is, you know, when he, you know, he, he talked about, you know, 15 years in the making, this is my moment mm-hmm. and stuff, but then he, he kind of scolded the fans and said that he, you know, that they don't get to share it with him because they were never with him all along the way. And, you know, then he, he kind of went into how he was going to take on all comers and, 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 you know, show these fans that he's the best that there is and they should have been with him all along. And, and uh, you know, that it, it was just a great promo. It was very well done. And I, I don't know how much of it was scripted and how much of it he got to ad-lib in there, but, uh, you know, it, it was just very compelling. Yep. Now, uh, I've got a pretty unique number four that I'm – excited about. I rewatched this one. I rewatched a lot of this stuff last night to prepare for this, and this one I rewatched and was still kind of blown away by it. And it's from Elimination Chamber this year. It was the SmackDown Elimination Chamber match. And the actual moment I want to talk about is the last eight minutes of that match where 
Kane got eliminated, chokeslams Edge and Rey Mysterio and leaves the ring. And Edge and Rey Mysterio went on to have a great eight-minute wrestling sequence. I'd say one of the best, that eight minutes, one of the best matches that either of them had in WWE. Just a phenomenal sequence between the two. Dramatic near falls, well-paced. I mean, it was some of that shotgun selling you get where hit a move, they're on the ground for a while, calm down, they get up, they hit a move. You know, it had those bursts of excitement. I just thought that this was masterful. And when you think about it, it's one of the final matches of Edge's career. I don't know. I, I would say this is probably the best match of the last year of his career. Yeah, that, that's probably true. I mean, you have to consider that this was also the last eight minutes of what I think was almost a what a 35 or 40-minute match. That um, they started. Yeah, that they both, you know, started out. So it was uh, an incredible, uh, you know, display by both of them of endurance. And, and uh, you know, and I think the selling was what made it. I, I think it's... Mm-hmm. You know, if you would have had, uh, you know, typical, you know, WWE selling, uh, it, it would have suffered or, you know, even, you know, other promotions that, that sell even less, it, it really would have <laughs> suffered. But, uh, you know, it, it was a great moment and, uh, you know, I appreciate what, you know, both of those guys have done in their careers and, you know, the Edge is obviously retired and Rey Mysterio is, is recovering and probably winding down. Uh, towards the end of his career. So, uh, you know, this was a probably if you were going to point to something in 2011 that would, you know, exhibit what these two, uh, you know, are capable of producing as far as entertainment value. This is probably the moment. And I, I, I struggle to think of anything uh, in, the, in the past couple of years uh, that could really top it as just, you know, as, as far as sheer excitement goes. So that was a fun match to watch. And going in, no one expected Ray Mysterio to have a shot at winning. And that's, I think that's one of the remarkable things about this sequence is watching it, you know, Ray kind of had already started his thing with Cody Rhodes going into WrestleMania, so you just said, well, Ray's not going to hold the world title going in. That's stupid. But then you watch this last eight minutes, and, you know, well, Ray hit the 619 and the splash a couple times, and you went, wow, Ray's actually going to win this thing. It, It made me believe in that for a minute, and that's, you know, that's something that's really difficult to do, and, you know, there's, a better moment that we'll get to a little bit later where a similar thing happened. But uh, kudos to Edge and Rey Mysterio on producing just a great sequence and a great end to what I, I would put up there as probably the best elimination chamber match in the uh, you know short nine-year history of that match. Tough to think of a better one. I mean, you know, yeah. unless you're going to go back to some of the early ones with, with Michaels and... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Jericho and Triple H, and I think they had Goldberg in one of them even. So, yeah, it's it's tough to think of a better one because that was a great 30-plus minutes of action. 2003 was a strange year with Goldberg, man. Um, but uh, tell us about your number three moment of the year. Uh, my number three moment of the year was CM Punk leaving Chicago uh, with the WWE title at, at Money in the Bank. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I can probably go spoilers and and uh and give my number 2 as well cuz they're kind of interrelated. Mm-hmm. It was basically that uh entire feud surrounding CM Punk and my number 2 moment is uh the the raw promo that uh that kicked off that money in the bank feud that you know kind of had the world wondering if uh if CM Punk was truly leaving WWE and if he was you know taking uh creative license and sounding off on his bosses and and things of that nature and you know now we all know that that was you know, all part of the game, but, you know, it, it, for for a moment, it did make you, 
you know, believe that Punk was really just kind of giving them the bird on the way out. And that's that's basically, you know, what made that whole feud work, and that's what made both moments work. Punk, uh, you know, kind of had a stroke of genius there with the with the promo, and then he was able to carry that forward uh, through the entire month, uh, you know, two money in the bank, and then they had that kind of magical moment there at the end of the show where, you know, Punk ran through his hometown crowd with the belt and left the arena. So it was, you know, the, the whole thing, I mean, it was probably my favorite uh, month uh, of the year of WWE Raw television, and it was probably my favorite pay-per-view of the year just because everything that they did at that time felt like it was, you know, firing on all cylinders, and they gave us some surprising moments. And for once, you know, we actually got to leave a pay-per-view thinking, you know, oh my, you know holy crap, I have no idea what's going to happen on Raw on Monday. And you know that that's that's always a great feeling, and I I always uh, get kind of excited when we when we have a conclusion to a pay per view that actually gives us more questions than answers, and that's a pretty rare thing in WWE these days. Well, and I'll get a little spoiler here too. My number two best moment of the year is CM Punk leaving Money in the Bank with the WWE Championship after having a absolutely breathtaking match with John Cena, and. Um, for me, uh, I should also mention, I was in Las Vegas um, in the crowd the night that CM Punk cut that promo, which was pretty cool. It's a cool night to say that I was there for, and that there were a lot of confused children in the crowd as Punk talked, which was awesome. But the, the thing about that Money in the Bank finish, and you mentioned having more questions than answers, it's not like a TNA show, like uh, I think it was, what, Final Resolution, that the last two matches said, we're going to give you the real finishes on impact. It wasn't like that, where nothing was really settled. There was something settled that night. There was a score settled. There was, you know, the, the pay-per-view felt worth buying. But it still made you say, holy crap, I have to watch Raw tomorrow. And that's what we're talking about. That idea that you got a satisfying chapter of the story and it left you wanting more. It's like watching, uh, you know, we compare wrestling to other TV shows all the time and you know, there, there's those few episodes of Lost where things get so intense and, oh, there's such a nice, you know, there's this breaking point that things get to and then screen goes black, word Lost shows up and you've got to wait till next week to find out. And that's exactly what I felt like Money in the Bank did. It gave you something satisfying, but it still gave you some story to build off of. And then that WWE logo came up and you're just sitting there going, now? Now? Really? Oh, my God. That was amazing. Yeah, and, you know, I, I miss those cliffhanger moments. It seems like we had, you know, a lot more of them, uh, you know, for a period there in the in the late 90s and, you know, early part of uh, of uh, this decade. But it was, uh, you know, it, it was a really exciting moment that kind of harkened back to a lot of the great moments during, you know, the Austin-McMahon feud and, and, and things like that where you really had no expectation of what of what was coming next week or, you know what was coming at the next pay-per-view, uh, you know, and, until it happened, and and I hope they can they can you know find that magic again because uh, one of the common criticisms and one you know things that we've talked about in the past is that WWE has become very predictable, and it's uh, you know the the Attitude Era had that uh, kind of reality TV unpredictability unpredictability about it, and and this uh, you know the, the past um, you know probably five or six years has felt very very predictable a lot of the time and it, it takes away from the product. And this was one of the one of those moments where, you know, even uh, jaded fans had to at least uh, give the WWE props for doing something that was really successful and really fun to watch. So those uh, were definitely 
two of my favorite moments of the year. Mm-hmm. And if you go back, uh, again, you know, plugging some past stuff, but I know Jake and I did um, the day after Money in the Bank, we did an all-access review of the show. And although I think I had been up till 4 in the morning watching that show because I worked till midnight that night and uh, we were recording pretty early, uh, I, I think the review was pretty good. And if you want some extended thoughts and, you know, I think it's always interesting to go back to listen to old podcasts because you hear just how wrong the hosts were sometimes. And uh, not that we were super wrong, but, you know, just how, you know, you listen to that era and we're talking about, you know, well, what's WWE going to do? How long is Punk out for? And, of course, now we look at it and we know, well, he was out for two weeks and then he came back. Uh, it was all right. He had a few with Triple H that didn't go anywhere. But uh, go back and listen to that and uh, treat yourself to uh, just really Jake and I really complimenting the product and just talking to, you know, two fans that were sitting there just enjoying wrestling so much at that point, not like our jaded six-month-older selves now. Uh, so, uh, you got uh, I did three and two, so you got number three next, man. Oh yeah, um, um, my number three moment of the week. Sorry, we moment of the year. Sorry, we got a little mixed up there. My number three best moment of the year was James Storm defeating Kurt Angle in mere seconds to win the TNA World Heavyweight Championship. And uh, I don't, I didn't love the build to this and that Bobby Roode thing. Just all the title juggling that went on. But this was a moment when a star was made on Impact. And uh, this, I, I felt like this was a really special moment in TNA history with James Storm winning the title and its celebration afterwards. Last call, super kick, one, two, three. And, of course, as he celebrated with the fans, you just saw what there is in James Storm, both as an in-ring competitor and on the mic and everything. James Storm is a man of the people, and he's a guy who really can be TNA's future and can be TNA's breakout star if he gets the chance. Yeah, I mean, I, we, we, we've spoken about this before that, you know, neither of us were particularly happy with how they got there. But, uh, you know, I see a lot of the, uh, you know, the I guess you'd call it the Showtime era in WWE, the, the 80s era. Uh, you know, if, if you look down south during that period with, with how successful the NWA was, you know, all the southern baby faces were, like you said, men of the people, blue-collar guys, uh, you know, guys who could cut uh, – you know, you know, a promo talking like you know. If you look back at Dusty Rhodes' Hard Times promo, uh, or you know, and there's a little, even a little bit of uh, Michael Hayes in uh, in James Storm as well. But uh, you know, I, I think he is a, a throwback character, and you know, I, I think it's fun to watch, and I think he's got a lot of promise. And uh, you know, I, I thought the celebration after his uh, what was it about a 12 second match with uh, Kurt Angle to capture the title. Uh, you know, I thought that was really good. And, uh, you know, I think TNA could have uh, seized on something there. Uh, and, you know, they, they've made all kinds of uh, strange booking decisions since then. But I, I think once, uh, if, uh, you know, they get their, their problems sorted out in the booking department and they decide to uh, make a go of it with James Storm on top, you know, they, I, I think they can, you know, they can make some money with that because I think he's a, a wrestling character that a lot of people see, uh, you know, some of themselves in and, and can relate to and, and he can uh, obviously make a connection with the fans based on the reaction that he's been getting. So, uh, you know, it was a great moment, and I, I think you're right. You know, they they found a star in James Storm that day. And it's a star that's been there for a while, and I think it's just one of those things where the timing's right. Storm is at a place where he can handle that pressure and can 
really just cut promos like he was never able to cut before. Just great stuff with James Storm. And that was my number three moment of the year. My number two, we already went over it with CM Punk leaving Chicago with that WWE championship. And Jake and I actually have the same number one moment. And this one, this was special. This, to me, um, it, it was the moment of the year where I jumped out of my seat and was absolutely enthralled. It was the moment where I bought into a match and I bought into an outcome like I never thought I would. This was, uh, I can't say enough good about this one, enough about how special this moment really was. And even on repeated viewings, which I now have the privilege of, it still gets me. I still buy into it. And that moment, the moment that we've decided is our number one best moment of the year, Undertaker kicking out of the tombstone that Triple H gave him at WrestleMania and going on to become 19-0. and Absolutely phenomenal. When Triple H hit that tombstone, I thought it was over. Yeah, I mean, that was, uh, you know, that was one of those moments where you thought, okay, this is possible. Like, you know, mm-hmm. the... You know the the uphill battle for that match heading into WrestleMania. You know we we had two absolute classics between uh, you know Shawn Michaels and the Undertaker at the previous two WrestleManias, and and then the uh, you know they didn't really have that great of a build to this match up until the point where you know Shawn Michaels came in and and they had that three man promo on on a Raw that really kind of sold this match and kind of sent it home. Uh so you know they they really didn't have a whole lot of time to really get us to buy into this match because the build uh, up until that point really, you know, wasn't all that spectacular, but it didn't take long, you know, once this match got started for for everybody to realize that hey, you know, this this is something special and I think, you know, the getting to that moment uh, where Triple H ended up hitting the tombstone. I mean, that match had been absolutely brutal up to that point. Uh, you know, they had both hit some major offensive moves, and, uh, you know, they had done some work on the outside with, uh, you know, stairs and the announce tables and everything. So, you know, at this point in the match, you know, you're, you're expecting that the finish is going to come, you know, at any, at any moment. And then, you know, this tombstone happens. And you know, I, like you said, I, I bought it. I thought, oh man, this could be the, this could be the moment that the streak ends. And uh, you know, going against even my own better judgment, that said the streak is never going to end. But you know, then then the Undertaker kicks out at like two and nine tenths, and the place goes absolutely crazy. And then he goes on to win the match. And you know, it, it's really, uh, you know, I, I think uh, Triple H and the Undertaker really did quite a bit to to cement the legend of the Undertaker at WrestleMania. And, and uh, you know, I, I look forward to seeing you know what they can possibly do to top it this year. It seems like that's the direction they're going based on Triple H's recent promo. So it uh, it was a hell of a moment and a hell of a match, and, and I look forward to hoping they can top it, I guess. And uh, my question for you, because I believe it was, and I've called it this before, was that the best near fall in history? I mean, I know you can't go back and watch them all, but I really believe that that was the best near fall that I have ever seen. Mm, yeah, I mean, you know, some of the... Uh, some of the moments in the Michaels versus uh, uh, Undertaker matches are damn close just in recent memory, but there isn't one that immediately springs to mind that's any better. I would think that uh, it's probably in a in a class, uh, you know, with with a few others that uh, you know that you could probably dig around and find. But uh, nothing else springs to mind in recent memory that was any better than that one. It was it was just phenomenal. I'd agree, and. Uh you know, best moment of the year. And those were our own top five moments of the year. We just happened to both come up with the same one, which 
you know, it validates both of our choices a little bit, at least with each other. But how about we get into the fun part now and talk about our top or our bottom three worst moments of the year. And um, I'll let you start this one out. What was your bottom, what was your number three worst moment of the year? Um, you know, this was a recent one, and I'm uh, one of the regular SmackDown contributors for the site, so, uh, you know, I, I had to cover the show, and it was the awful uh, Christmas-themed episode of SmackDown with uh, Mick Foley as Santa. And I don't know how many people recall the show, even though it was recently. And, uh, these holiday shows tend to get skipped by a lot of people, and, and for good reason, because this match featured about 8 to 10 minutes of in-ring action and about 90 minutes of backstage segments that were absolutely awful. Uh, you know, I guess the, the one thing that you can say for the show that would have been the only major event that took place was that Hornswoggle was granted his ability to speak by Santa Claus and has since gone, uh, gone on to have more awful backstage segments with other personalities to, uh, to cement that point. But, uh, you know, this, that, this particular episode of SmackDown felt like a throwaway uh, from the moment it aired. Uh, you know, Mick Foley has not had very much success connecting with the fans since his return, and I'm not sure, you know, if that's just what's been written for him or if, you know, he's just uh, fallen out of favor, uh, you know, w with with fans around the country just because of uh, how long he's been gone. But he definitely doesn't garner the attention he once did, and he hasn't done anything all that engaging uh, to really capture the fans back. So uh, this show just kind of felt like a, a dud to me, and, and it, it really... Uh, you know, was kind of cut in between the middle of a lot of good SmackDown episodes, so it really stuck out as uh, as one of the uh, worst episodes of SmackDown this year, and it made my list of worst moments. It was Christmas before thanks, or the week after Thanksgiving, right? It was a Christmas episode, a yeah, random yeah. live Tuesday night Christmas episode, the week after Thanksgiving. I mean. If you're going to do a holiday special, wouldn't last week or this week be the time to do it? You don't roll out all the Christmas stuff when most people probably don't even have their Christmas decorations out yet. It just felt out of place. It felt kind of odd. You know, Michael Cole was dressed as a reindeer for some reason. It really was a bad show. And not just like, oh, yeah, it was bad. Uh, don't, you know, I'm never going to rewatch anything from it. It was bad, bad. It was. It, it, it deserved a slammy for worst show of the year over the slammies, which is spectacular, actually. It, it was pretty awful. I, I just remember watching it and every, you know, as the show went on, just going, it's going to get good here soon. They're going to, you know, and it did. By the end, there was that really good uh, Daniel Bryan versus Mark Henry cage match that uh, our own Chris Shore thinks was the best TV match of the year. And, that was a great match, but the first hour and 50 minutes of that show was such pure, unadulterated crap, it didn't matter how good that match was. That was a bad show. And, uh, you know, just a special shout-out to Mick Foley as Santa Claus. What has what Mick been doing besides being involved in bad segments since he came back? Is there an idea behind it? Is the goal to say, hey, Mick Foley, you're going to get something awesome at WrestleMania, but we need all of this crap behind you to build it up? Or is this uh, what a lot of people think, the, uh, well, he went to TNA type of punishment? Hard to explain. I mean, the, the TNA explanation seems like the obvious one, but, uh, you know, they, they've had uh, Booker went to TNA and came back, and they've 
and Vince is apparently, you know, really uh, behind him uh, both on commentary and his recent ring work. So uh, it, it's hard to say, you know, whether the TNA punishment fits the crime. But uh, you know, Foley just has not been that good since he came back. And uh, you know, I think the uh, in the in the post show audio that Chris and I did, you know, we 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 spent a lot of time talking about how uh, you know how the last you know what was it 12 minutes of the show with the with the Brian and uh, and Mark Henry match were were excellent, but I mean it's hard to ignore you know 100 minutes of just complete and utter nonsense. And uh, as good as that uh, that last match was, I mean I I can't imagine if you were a casual viewer of the WWE that you could have stuck around that long uh, to sit through that. I mean you you would have you would have hit the the DVR if you had one and, and walked away you know <laughs> and come back to it a couple of days later to catch up because they're other than that, there was absolutely nothing redeeming about that show, and uh, you know it, it, it was just a failed concept from, from you know start to the you know 90 minutes in really. Yep, I completely agree, and uh, I'll move up, move us on now to my number three worst moment of the week, and I know we're going to bring this one up a little bit later, so let's just gloss over it now. Booker T on commentary for the year of 2011. As I was watching that Elimination Chamber match last night, I went, oh my gosh, Booker's terrible. Booker is awful. So I will say the Booker has improved throughout the year, but he went from being the worst commentator ever to being like Tony Schiavone on Nitro in 1998. It's, it's not really a, you know, it's not like an honor. He just got minorly better. And that's, that's all I'm going to say right now because I know that we'll bring this one up later. So, if that's all right with you, yeah, so we move on to your one. number two. Uh, yeah, my number two basically was the entire feud regarding, uh, you know, Michael Cole and Jim Ross. You know, I, I, uh, I guess I, I maybe I'm a little bit too much of a homer regarding Jim Ross, but you know, basically my you know entire uh, cognizant memory of watching. Uh, wrestling growing up, you know, Jim Ross was basically one of, uh, you know, the focal points of the show, and I, I've always considered him to be, uh, you know, the best announcer of all time, you know, a, a title that he uh, basically defers to uh, Gordon Soley, but, you know, the the entire thing basically felt like a veiled insult at JR, and I, and I understand, that, you know, it's a wrestling show, and it's all fiction and, and everything, but uh, the reputation uh, that that has gone around backstage is that you know Vince McMahon really enjoys sticking at the JR and and Cole you know his part in this uh, uh, you know is that he developed his uh, his heel play-by-play announcer which you know I, I posted in the .NET forums yesterday regarding this that you know it's basically I think catalyzed uh, you know the the recent ratings drop uh, that has seemed to have been precipitous throughout 2011. It, it's really been the result of them attempting to make Michael Cole a heel play-by-play announcer. And it's, you know, I, I don't know if uh, if you've ever done any, uh, you know, play-by-play work watching a sports show or any, you know, done play-by-play work as a joke with friends, but it's extremely difficult to, uh, you know, to actually do play-by-play work and editorialize as a heel at the same time. And I think he's failed at doing both of those things. And, you know, it, it kind of carried over into his feud with JR, where he spent a lot of time bashing JR at the, in, you know, in the booth uh, and then, you know, failing to call any of the action in the ring at the same time. So the whole thing felt like, uh, you know, it, 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 it was not an awful 
feud in a, in a wrestling sense. I mean, I'm sure it, it got under some people's skin, but it was one of those things that took away from the entirety of the show because Cole spent so much time and so much wasted energy attempting to bash JR on commentary that it literally stopped him from being able to put other people over, and that's why it's on my worst list. Yeah, I I think, and it's funny that, you know, so many of our moments have to do with commentary, and I think 2011 is a show. When you go back and you watch it on DVD in a few years, or a year when you watch the DVDs of it in a few years, you're going to go, the commentary was really bad this year. What was I doing? And a wrestling show, you think, you don't spend two hours with John Cena. You don't spend two hours with John Laurinaitis. You don't spend two hours with CM Punk. You spend two hours with the commentators. They're the people in your ear the whole time. And traditionally, the commentators kind of tell you what you should think. They, they motivate you. They bring feelings out of you. You look at what Jim Roth and Jerry Lawler did in the uh, Attitude Era. And, you know, JR, when he called something, especially something involving Stone Cold Steve Austin, it was spectacular. It, you know, there, there was a connection there, and I know it was JR wanting to do his best for his friend, but it was also JR saying, I'm at work, I'm going to do my job, and I'm going to do it better than anyone can. And he did. And then you look at Jerry Lawler, especially when he was kind of in his heel color heyday, supporting Mr. McMahon and supporting the corporation, and it just drew, it really drew an emotional response out of you. And that's something that's missing in wrestling right now. The commentators don't cause an emotional response other than, oh my God, shut up and call the match. If you're a new fan tuning in, and you think that this is how commentary is supposed to work, there are issues. Like, you're not going to come back to wrestling, and you're not going to go back and watch classic tapes because, well, you don't want to hear a lot of bickering between a heel play-by-play guy and a baby-faced color commentator who half the time doesn't care. It's, it's really sad what wrestling commentary has become in 2011, and we can only hope that, as you said, and that uh, link in the forum is leading to, People are now starting to blame Cole for the ratings drop, and people are now starting to say Michael Cole caused the ratings to fall down because of the heel character, and we can only hope that this means Cole goes away, or maybe they bring in JR for that super serious rumble to WrestleMania season. Whatever it is, I, I think anything involving Michael Cole stopping his character right now would be a good thing for WWE. And as far as the Cole and JR feud, yeah, it was okay towards the beginning of the year, and there were some funny moments with, you know, the kiss-my-foot match and all that, but by the end, we just needed it to end. And bringing it back up on the Rockets Rock episode and the Flammies episode, it, it's been really, really poor for a long, long time. Yeah, it, it was played out pretty early. I mean, you know, you can you can attempt to get over... Cole's heel character if you want to by bringing in JR to have Cole, you know, mouth off on him. But, you know, when you're when you're pouring barbecue sauce on people and and you're uh, you know, you're you're revealing Cole's uh obviously uh, you know, doctored up stinky feet from his socks and you know, it it just gets to the point where it's over the top and ridiculous, but you know, I I don't want to necessarily blame Michael Cole for this cuz there there was a point in his career on SmackDown when he was calling the show with with Taz and and some uh, and that, did he ever call the show with Foley? I think that might have been Jr. Maybe that was Jr. I think it was Jr. But there was you know there have been periods in Michael Cole's career when he wasn't quite as obnoxious when he was a competent announcer, 
and I don't think it's necessarily Michael Cole, the person that's that's uh, causing you know the ratings to drop, and I think blaming it on on uh, Michael Cole is a little uh, ridiculous. Perhaps uh, you can put the the blame on whoever in the creative team, uh, or maybe it was McMahon himself who decided that having you know a play-by-play announcer uh, go off on heel tangents in the middle of uh, of wrestling matches was a good idea because it's obviously this character that's the problem, and it's it's gotten to the point where. Jerry Lawler, the guy who spends most of the show being completely disinterested with what's going on, is reminding Cole that there's a match going on, and then he needs to actually call what the action is. And, you know, that is just not productive for anybody that's in the ring, and it takes away from what they're trying to accomplish with their own characters. So it's just been a a rather, uh, you know, ridiculous year in in WWE for commentary, and it's gotten to the point where it's taken away from the show as a whole. So I hope they correct it. And like I said in the forums, you know, Perhaps the way to get out of this is just to have Cole disappear for a while and, and, and you know, come back and do his mea culpa and, and get back to doing what he was doing a couple of years ago. I think that's the only way you get out of it. And Michael Cole, as a commentator, is never going to tear, you know, never going to be the best in the business. But Michael Cole was good, and he had a good chemistry with Taz, and I think an even better chemistry with JDL, where they called matches well. They really balanced each other out, and maybe it's because um, JBL was so over the top and Michael Cole wasn't that it worked, but I would really like to see Michael Cole get back to doing some straight commentary instead of playing into the fact that fans don't like him. It it would be great. But moving on now to uh, something a little more serious on our worst list, and this, uh, this is my number two worst moment of the year, and it just happened Friday night, actually. And if we were doing our traditional countdown, it would be the number one worst moment of the week for sure. And uh, we're talking about the blatant, unprotected chair shots to the head at the final battle pay-per-view, or a final battle eye pay-per-view from Ring of Honor. And this was disgusting. And really the attempts to promote the fact that there were unprotected chair shots on the show since then is even more disgusting to me with Kevin Kelly with his really silly article about referees and how they should stop matches when things like this happen, as opposed to, you know, the guys in the back going, nope, end the match right now, ref, tell them to come to the back, and we're going to have a talk. Yeah, I, I, I read uh, uh, Kevin Kelly's article on, uh, on uh, I'm, I'm failing to remember the website, but it's not consequential, but, uh, you know, and it was basically referring to, you know, a, a previous time when he worked for WWE when Vince would, uh, you know, say that if the wrestlers screwed up and uh, they broke the the rules of a match, that the the ref should uh, you know just uh, keep you know up the air that they have authority and uh, and shut down the show in order to you know teach the said wrestlers a lesson. And it you know it, it was really you know the, he normally writes for that for the website in more of a you know his own journalistic editorial way. And this was an obvious attempt to forward a storyline, and it wasn't really an article per se, more so as the precursor to what ended up being that Twitter uh, feud between him and the world's greatest tag team that was obviously uh, a a Ring of Honor storyline regarding the chair shots at the pay-per-view. So the whole thing I thought was just in bad taste. And, you know, the chair shots themselves, I mean, we know what uh, concussions can do to people's careers. We've seen you know, how they can affect people's mental states with, uh, you know, what happened with uh, with Chris Benoit and, uh, you know, what what has happened in other sports with football players having, 
you know, dying prematurely due to dementia and, and you know, having vertigo spells in their late 20s and, and uh, you know, Ben Utecht who uh, went to the University of Minnesota and played a few seasons for the Indianapolis Colts, uh, who I've met on several occasions. Um, you know, he's, I think he's 30 years old and he, and he goes through spells where, you know, he can't remember uh, various events in his life. He doesn't remember previous relationships with people. And, you know, he had, I think it was, he said, five concussions. Uh, a couple wow. in college, a couple in the pros, and there are probably guys in you know who worked through ECW in the in the late 90s and early part of uh, the 2000s that that probably had five concussions in a year. You know, I mean, those guys were doing ridiculous things, and there's no telling you know the long-term effects that that will have on their brain. You know, they're probably going to have a greatly reduced lifespan because of it, and you know, to not only have these unprotected chair shots on the pay-per-view, which is bad enough considering what we already know about concussions, uh, you know, to then go ahead and try to make a storyline out of it, thinking you're being edgy and taboo is just the bottom, you know, of the barrel as far as I'm concerned. I mean, you're scraping pretty low to try to turn that into a storyline. And I think it's, uh, it was definitely in bad taste. And, and not only did they have the unprotected chair shots, but I think it was uh, during the Carino and, and Steen match that they had you know, a superplex under the guardrail. I mean, what in the hell yeah. was that? You know, I mean, that was bad uh, just in and of itself. So, uh, you know, there were a lot of moments on that show that had me shaking my head, you know, aside from the uh, the poor production with the cameras being, you know, pointed all over the arena at, at the wrong times and, and the pacing of the show where you have, you know, a pay-per-view that starts uh, in the evening and, and by the end of it you got fans sleeping in the aisles. Uh, you know, it was like a four-and-a-half-hour show. Uh, then you have all these, un, you know, ridiculous spots that, that take unnecessary risks that don't necessarily forward, you know, any of the drama in the match. It, it was just a bad pay-per-view for Ring of Honor, and I hope they learned their lesson from it. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's, you know, so most of the time with Ring of Honor, we're all for their eye pay-per-views, and we'll, you know, get the word out and say, hey, it's one of the best values in wrestling. $15, you can't go wrong. You're going to get a few good matches. And on the show, there were a few good matches, but... I think there were more cringeworthy and uh, really frightening moments on this show. You mentioned the superplex on the guardrail, and that's that's horrifying to me. The, there's no way to guard against it. There's no way to protect yourself. And then you've got, you know, a lot of unprotected chair shots, unprotected kicks to the head, and all of these things where, you know, the wrestlers can pull their kicks. I'll, I don't think they are, but I'll give them that. But you don't really pull a chair shot that well and get the sound that they had. You don't pull the... Uh, there's no way to make those not hurt. You can say they're gimmicked chairs all you want, but you listen to the sound and you look at the effect that it had on the wrestlers, and it's it's frightening. And you think, even if uh, you think about it and you go, okay, well, the wrestlers made the choice and, you know, they'll do what they want to do, Ring of Honor needs to step in and say, this is not happening on our shows anymore. And really the other wrestlers in the back who don't want to get concussions early need to step up and say, hey, Briscoes and uh, Haas and Benjamin, we don't want to have to do that to top you. We don't want to have to get that violent to get over because you pushed it too far. We need to work together. We're good enough. Everyone in that company is good enough to get a match over without the unprotected chair shots. They're good enough to get over his heels without the unprotected chair shots and everything. They just need to do it. I, I feel like this was a lazy shortcut more than it was a real attempt, you know. And to have Nigel McGinnis sitting there, a guy whose career was cut short because of chair shots to the head, 
and play into the storyline. A guy whose career, who's, it's, you know, he's on a retirement tour now, returning to the ring, but it was just getting started. He was ready to sign a WWE contract. He was there. He had made it. And a guy whose career was cut short because he was hit in the head one too many times because he took one too many stiff shots, and that's not even all chair shots. And to have him sitting there going, well, I know concussions, and that's a little dangerous, was disgusting. And the fact that now it seems like that's, you know, uh, what are they going to do, change the world's greatest tag team to the concussors? Or uh, as you suggested, as I think you suggested on Twitter last night, the cripplers. I mean, how far into things are they going to get? Because it's been shown by research, Chris Benoit had the brain of an 80-year-old Alzheimer's patient when he did what he did. And that's no excuse for it, but I don't see how wrestlers aren't more careful after hearing that, aren't more aren't going, you know what, let's protect our heads, let's be safe after well, hearing that. And to know that a company is out there condoning it, it's sickening. Yeah, I mean, Chris Nowinski was, uh, you know, has, I think he's continued to work with, uh, you know, different uh, sports, uh, I think he has his own sports charity that he runs or maybe that he's mm-hmm. a representative of and he works with the NFL and, uh, you know, he's, he's starting to make inroads in the UFC. And, I mean, just, you know, people have known about the dangers of head injuries for a long time. I and mean, perhaps we didn't have the science to really tell us exactly, uh, you know, what the long-term effects were. But, I mean, if you look at boxers, uh, you know, with pugilistic dementia is what they call it, uh, you know, from repeated blows to the head. Um, you know, look at a guy like Roy Jones uh, Jr., who, you know, he, he became a color commentator on HBO after his career. And there are moments during broadcasts where he literally has a stutter that he never had before, and he can't get certain words out because his brain can't process that particular sound anymore. You know, and it's just kind of sad to see somebody who, you know, was a an athlete at the pinnacle of his particular sport, uh, you know, be reduced to, you know, somebody who doesn't even have the brain functions uh, that you would expect out of someone who is elderly. So it's uh, it's tough to watch. And... You know, I don't say this because I want to scold, uh, you know, Shelton Benjamin and Charlie Haas and say that they're awful human beings, you know, and, and that they, they can't redeem themselves. But, I, you know, it, there comes a point where people who observe the sport and people who, you know, are in the sport should probably realize that, uh, you know, there are inherent dangers in it that, uh, you know, and it doesn't make you a tough guy, uh, or, you know, it doesn't make you a, not a tough guy for saying that, hey, you know, perhaps this probably isn't the best course of action if we actually want to have lives after we're done in this business. So, uh, you know, it, it's time for, you know, Ring of Honor to at least address the issue because I think, uh, you know, TNA and, and WWE have done a very good job about removing that stuff from their broadcast. Exactly. And, it's and you know, some people may point to uh, the match we talked about as one of our favorites of the year, Triple H against The Undertaker, and the fact that in that match... Um, Triple there H was a, the Undertaker there was a in the head shot, of the yeah. field chair. Yeah, but when you look at that match, Undertaker, you know, you watch that, and you may have to go back and watch it in slow motion. Undertaker got his hands up; he didn't take it and protect it, and it was one chair shot. In and about, even the head, even in though about Undertaker got his hand up, they both got fined. Yeah, they got they fined, got and fined. you know, you can say, "Well, oh, fifty dollar fine with how much they made that night." I, I understand that, but you know what? It was the one unprotected or the one chair shot to the head. It wasn't unprotected. It was the one chair shot to the head in WWE in the last three or four years. That's when you look at it that way. Yes, you know you should eliminate it altogether, but when you use it that seldomly, 
two guys who know what they're doing, and you see that there was protection there, and there was a fine afterwards, you, it, do, it doesn't even compare to what the Briscoes and World's Greatest Tag Team did at Final Battle. It's, you know, and I don't mean to get all serious and soapboxy here talking about how disgusting it is, and I, I think the really sad thing is just that it's a promotional tactic for them. It's, you know, what, it's, how do they go forward? Is this what makes the World's Greatest Tag Team a heel tag team? Is they're not afraid to hit you in the head with a steel chair? Yeah, I, I think we've just about covered the issue, and I plan pretty soon to uh, also write a blog on the issue for the website. It's just, it's sad knowing what we know that a major national company, and I think it's time to consider ROH a major national company. It's not just some independent company that's only on DVD anymore. They have TV clearance in most or a large portion of the United States. They're touring a lot more and everything else. It's time to consider them a major national company and expect them to take responsibility for the actions of their talent. Agreed. Yeah. So uh, I think you have a little bit more of a, a lighthearted topic to bring up here. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the the number one on my list um, was Booker T joining uh, commentary for the year, mm-hmm. and I, I think you touched on it when you said you rewatched the Elimination Chamber pay per view, which I I believe was the January pay per view last year, if I'm not mistaken. But February, um, February, okay. So uh, I, I think that was his first major pay per view event on commentary, and. During the Raw Elimination Chamber match, with uh, you know, with Cena going, I think he went out early in that match. Um, Booker T said that you know, despite his lack of talent and ability, John Cena has ascended to great heights in the WWE. And at at that point, I pretty much knew that this was going to be a very bad mistake. And and I don't think that I've been proven wrong. Uh, you know, with Booker T's uh, commentary throughout the rest of the year. And it's just been, you know, I think they, did they they do some kind of shucky-ducky quack-quack award at the Slammies or something like that? I don't remember exactly what they did for the Divas, but, I mean, that's basically become his his Divas catchphrase, and he has a bunch of other ridiculous ones. But, I mean, you know, I, I get the impression, and I've said this before, that one of the most important things about WWE TV is that, the show makes the people backstage laugh. And I think people backstage find Booker T hilarious, and that's why he continues to have a spot on commentary because he's just not a very serious guy on commentary. He routinely loses his place. He routinely says completely nonsensical things. Uh, you know, and, and I'm not sure if that's the character or if that's actually Booker. So, I, I mean, I don't want to call out Booker for being a, an idiot when I have no idea uh, you know, if that's what he's being instructed to do or what. But, I mean, the guy just comes across like, uh, you know, like he has a room temperature IQ on uh, on commentary, and it, it it does nothing for the talents in the ring. It does nothing for the show as a whole. And it, it's just been really disappointing for me because I had high hopes, uh, you know, for Booker going on commentary when he initially started because I had read, you know, the rumors of years past where he would just bust people up backstage with his, with his commentary and really – you know, really get people going, but then then you realize that apparently wrestlers have really terrible sense of the humor or something, because it's just not working out and it's it's become a distraction. And, and actually, I thought uh, you know since Booker has been off commentary a little bit with this feud with Cody Rhodes with his return to the ring, that uh, the show has kind of improved a little bit because 
he's kind of removed some of the ridiculousness from the commentary. And, you know, whether or not they change it and Booker T can, can find a different character that's more suitable, uh, you know, for commentary in WWE, I'm not sure. But at, at this point, I, I just can't get past the ridiculous catchphrases and, and the routinely, you know, losing his spot and losing his train of thought. And, uh, you know, like that the quote about Cena, I mean, stuff like that is routine where he, you know, he says these veiled insults that are supposed to be compliments, and it, it just doesn't work for me. So it's been a very... Uh, you know, at various times I've, I've laughed at Booker, but mostly it's just been because of how stupid what came out of his mouth really was. Well, yeah, and what, I mean, and you listen to Booker, and half the time he doesn't even talk in complete sentences. No. I mean, it's, let me just, and then he stops, or, you know, and that right there is exactly what I'm talking about. You haven't said anything for two minutes. What, what, what were you actually talking about? It, it's this idea that, you know, and he's gotten better about this, but for that first part of the year, he was a cliche machine. He just spat out cliches and thought, that's how you commentate. And he had a lot of commentators have their own cliches or their own catchphrases, you know, stomp in a mud hole, slobber knocker, and all that. But they were used appropriately. And I, I pick on JR a little bit because JR did have a lot of catchphrases. He was a commentator with many catchphrases. But just the way that Booker uses them and now uses his own catchphrases like shucky ducky quack quack and oh it's pretty awful. It's really bad and you know we talked about it with Cole and JR and we'll talk about it here. It's that kind of commentary that undermines the product. Like I said, you spend two hours on each weekly show with the commentator. And when the commentator is undermining the product and not taking it seriously and being just kind of just bad, when the commentator is being that bad, you don't have a choice but to react and you know, not want to watch the show. It makes you not want to pay attention. And even in that brilliant sequence I was talking about between Edge and Rey Mysterio, Booker was there with his uh, kind of nonsensical calls and, you know, it was lucky that the other commentators were taking it completely seriously and Michael Cole probably had some of the best work of his career in that. But Booker was really bad and you just wonder why. I mean, this summer they were leaving Jim Ross off of pay-per-views to put Booker T on them. They, that's like saying I have the best, you know, I, I have the best quarterback of all time on my team. But you know what? I'm going to put in Curtis Painter. That, that's exactly what they're doing with uh, Booker T, and it's sad. It, what they're doing is just sad. And uh, I really hope that as he uh, starts to wrestle a little bit more, that this Booker T on commentary experiment comes to an end in 2012. Yeah, I mean, we can, we can only hope that uh, either, you know, the experiment comes to an end or, uh, you know, they really tone down his character. Because, I mean, I don't think Booker is that dumb, uh, you know, in... in in his day-to-day life, I mean, he's, uh, you know, a pretty accomplished wrestling trainer, and, uh, you know, he wasn't that dumb on uh, on Tough Enough during his appearances. I mean, he seemed like he spoke in complete sentences and was a pretty competent mm-hmm. trainer and, and everything like that. So, the, I mean, it must be, you know, them telling Booker to go out there and, and completely, uh, you know, act a fool. And it, it really doesn't work. I mean, it, it doesn't help the product. It doesn't help the talents in the ring. Oftentimes it makes Booker look like a complete moron. And, you know, I'm sure he's collecting a, a pretty nice paycheck as a result of it, but I, I, I can't imagine that it's making him feel very good about his, uh, his, the legacy of his career if, 
you know, the twilight of it. It's going to be him making an ass out of himself on commentary. So, uh, you know, I, I hope it improves, but I really don't uh, have any expectation that it will because I think this is the type of stuff that really makes McMahon laugh and it really puts into perspective why so much of the commentary or comedy on WWE programs is so terrible. Yep. And uh, now let's move on to uh, my number one worst moment of the year. And uh, it's the first 45 minutes of impact of the Impact episode that was right after Bound for Glory, and it seems like we get this one every year from TNA. And we talked about it then as the worst moment of the week, and I had to dig it back up because it was awful. It was a 45-minute promo with a few commercial breaks in there where they took all of the twists and turns that happened to Bound for Glory and explained them to you in detail. It was so awful sitting there, sitting through that first 45 minutes that you just wanted to cry. It was really just some bad stuff from TNA, bad promos, Hulk Hogan basking in all his glory, Sting, Dixie, Carter, everything bad that you could imagine happening in this. It did. And not to mention, it was 45 minutes. It was that long that no wrestling happened. I can't get over just how bad that first 45 minutes was, which is why it's my number one worst of the year. Yeah, I mean, if you turn the dial back to, like, 2002, I mean, well, it might have been might have been a little bit earlier than that, where, where Triple H was really in his first dominant heel title run uh, with Evolution. And oftentimes Raw would begin with these long 20, maybe the 30-minute Triple H promos that would really just suck all the oxygen right out of an arena. I mean, it, it was really one of those moments. And, you know, I... The the thing that really struck me about that particular show was that it showed me how little, you know, TNA actually thinks people watch their pay-per-views. I mean, if you have to spend 45 minutes of your television broadcast explaining in explicit detail what happened at the pay-per-view the previous Sunday, why the hell would anybody tune in? I mean, or is that, you know, or how focused are you on your television shows that your $30 or $40 pay-per-views are such, are such an afterthought that you have to explain everything that happens on your TV show. I mean, why not just, you know, put the television or the pay-per-views on television and be done with it? So it, it really felt like, you know, just one of those really boring, really long, uh, you know, arrogant promos where everybody goes out and, you know, almost like... Uh, like an NWO promo following a pay-per-view that would take place on Nitro, mm-hmm. where they just hand the mic back and forth and talk about how awesome they were, and it would just really ruin uh, the show and have me, you know, just patiently waiting for the first hour of Nitro to get over so I could flip over to Raw uh, during the Monday Night Wars. It was, it was just a really bad promo. I mean, when you're when you go to a second commercial break and you come back and it's still the same idiots in the ring, you just want to throw something at your television, and that's. That's kind of where I was at during that entire promo. Yeah, and it, it was sad because we were so, and I think the, one of the things that made it worse, we were so optimistic about where TNA was going into Bound for Glory. I mean, a couple bad shows in the go-home, but TNA had their, it looked like they had their story straight. They had everything right. They knew exactly where they were going and how they were going to do everything, and it just kind of fell off at Bound for Glory. And I think they still haven't recovered from the storytelling there. And then you look at where this promo was and everything that was said and what happened and how long it took and all of that. And you just, to me, this is kind of the ultimate downturn of TNA this year. When they started to trend upward, boom, 
they just fell flat on their faces. And it was with this promo. And I think this was undoubtedly, for me, the worst TNA moment this year. And, you know, congrats to them for topping um, uh, that lockdown angle versus Jarrett debacle and really that lockdown pay-per-view that I just thought was really bad. But they did it, and they did it so well, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I, Kurt Angle is uh, is already vying for worst moment of 2012 when he finishes his beatdown of everybody in uh, James Storm's hometown. But uh, <laughs> this was definitely uh, one of those moments where he just stood there going, I can't believe that this is on you know, a wrestling show and a company that takes itself seriously. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just like, you know, how... You had such uh, you know a, a a good chance to build momentum, you know, in, in the lead up to Bound for Glory, and and then the show, you know, just kind of felt like you could see the wheels were starting to come off, and then this particular promo just kind of sealed that in your mind that okay, you know, the, there are flashes of brilliance in this promotion, but really it's just run by complete morons. And that's the best description of TNA I can think of. That's they're ran by morons. But, you know, now kind of refocusing on the more positive aspects of the year. I don't know about you, but I had a really rough time coming up with my top five of the year because I made a list of everything I could remember off the top of my head that was good. Then I went through old show reports and archives and all that. And I ended up with a lot of good stuff that I had to rewatch and try and rank. And, you know, some stuff just fell by the wayside, like the Randy Orton and Christian feud that really reignited Randy Orton's in-ring career. There was just so much to this year. You had, uh, um, you know, I had to leave Mark Henry's stuff off of my list. You had the Christian World Heavyweight Championship winning Extreme Rules. Uh, A lot of great matches in ROH, like El Generico versus Christopher Daniels, the best in the world, 2011. And uh, the Kings of Wrestling versus World's Greatest Tag Team at Honor Takes Center Stage Night 1. Really great matches. The four-way, Destination X. Um, for the TNA contract that Austin Aries ended up winning. A lot of good things happened in wrestling this year. It was a phenomenal year for in-ring action. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, there, it, it was a struggle to think of, you know, oh, these are the top five moments because there were, you know, a lot of things that, that you mentioned that, you know, I, I considered and left off my list. And, uh, you know, that the Christian title win, uh, you know, kind of the emergence of Alberto Del Rio at the beginning of the year, uh, you know, there there were a lot of things that, uh, you know, if you were going to put a top 20, you probably could have filled 20 and, and still had some uh, some runners up that you would have felt had a chance, uh, you know, if you were going to redo it again. So, uh, you know, this year was a very good year for wrestling fans. I think, uh, you know, there were a lot of moments that you could look back on and say, you know, heck, if this would have been, uh, you know, 2001 or 2002, uh, in, in WWE, perhaps, uh, you know, you would have uh, even struggled to come up with uh, 25 moments. I mean, there, this was an actual excellent year for in-ring action. I mean, it, it's hard to, uh, you know, you could probably go through and find 25 really awful moments, too. Uh, oh, yeah. But if you, you know, if you're somebody who, who values, uh, you know, year-end lists and you look through 2011 and compare it to previous years, I think uh, this particular, uh, you know, year would have been, uh, you know, up there with any of them. I, I have a hard time uh, thinking of, you know, 2010, 2009, 2008, all the way back to perhaps when Cena's run in 2005 and 2006 started. I mean, this is probably my favorite year uh, in pro wrestling 
since that era started. So uh, it was a lot of fun to watch, and I, and I look forward to 2012 being an even better year because I think, you know, we have uh, a return uh, coming next Monday on Raw. We have, uh, you know, Rey Mysterio returning a little bit later this year. We have Brodus Clay's debut. You know, we have Seth Maybe. Rollins and Dean Ambrose in FCW who will probably make their ascent into the main roster this year in WWE. So uh, there are a lot of people uh, and a lot of moments to, to prepare for. And, you know, Ring of Honor got onto a major television, uh, you know, contract. Uh, you know, TNA has a lot of, uh, you know, young stars that, you know, if they could get their act together, could make for some excellent moments. So there's a lot of things to be optimistic about uh, as a wrestling fan. But, you know, like always, it always depends on, you know, who's booking the shows and, and uh, you know, what, what talents that they recognize and decide to push that, that's going to make or break uh, pro wrestling. And I, and I hope that, uh, you know, they get it right this year because they, they definitely got a lot of it right in 2011. Exactly. And uh, it should... I'll be very fun to watch play out, and, you know, no matter what happens, we're going to be here to cover it. And you know what else 2011 was the best for? Wrestling coverage on ProWrestling.net, because Jake and I were added to the staff, and uh, you had Chris Shore ascending, and, you know, it, it's, been a, it's been a good year on .net, and if you want to uh, get in on some of that action and hear kind of our development throughout 2011 and also listen to things as we go forward in 2012, check out that ProWrestling.net members side of things. It's a great season to sign up because you've got the Royal Rumble, you've got Elimination Chamber, you've got WrestleMania. There's going to be some great news and analysis coming out. And uh, I can't, I struggle to think of anyone in the business more well-connected than Jason is and that uh, gives more scoops that uh, you may not, you probably won't hear anywhere else uh, aside from the .NET Weekly Show, which I believe they're releasing as an all-access podcast later today for the first time ever. So, Check that out. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, for the members, thank you for your support of ProWrestling.net. And thank you to anyone who listened. And have a happy and a safe New Year. Anything to add, Jake? Nope. Just have a great New Year, everybody. And hopefully we'll uh, we'll see you as uh, new members next week. Yeah. All right. And uh, if you want to give us your own personal top fives in uh, my section of the .NET Members Forum, I've already started a thread about the uh, top five moments of the year. And go ahead and check that out. Read other members and uh, add your own, please. Thank you very much, folks.